Welcome to the Center for Medical Simulation Book Club. You're here with Janice Pelaganis and our Center for Medical Simulation crew, who I'll introduce in a few minutes. Uh, I have been looking forward to its arrival and the publication of the American Psychologist, which is the journal of APA, the American Psychological Association, um, special issue entitled the science. And in this issue, there are 20 articles representing the current state of the science of teams and teamwork and how they apply to a wide variety. And I see it as a resource that demonstrates the importance of teamwork and what we know so far about team functioning. Throughout this special issue, there are insights that grapple with what works, for which tasks, what people, and which situations. And in my mind, this publication is sentinel to our work in interprofessional education. So as part of our own faculty development, we thought that we would make this book club a little different than our previous meetings. Today, we will be reviewing the articles that we found most interesting. Today's session will serve more as an informational session on five articles from this issue that I believe can influence our teaching and organization and keep us updated on knowledge that exists today. To preview our session, I'd like to introduce everyone that's joined us today at the Center for Medical Simulation, especially uh, Jenny Rudolph, who will be kind of co-facilitating this book club with me. So Jenny, I wonder if you can start off with your introduction. Thank you, Janice. Hi, I'm Jenny Rudolph. I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Medical Simulation and particularly enthusiastic about today's topic as an organizational behavior scholar. I love the study of teams, and so I'm very excited to learn along with my colleagues. And I'm Jeff Cooper, the former executive director and now executive director emeritus and a senior fellow at CMS and also eager to learn what other people have to teach me about teamwork. Hi, Kate Morse. I'm the associate director for educational leadership and international programs at CMS, and I'm particularly interested in this because we do a lot of work on teams, whether it's in simulation or in the clinical environment through our affiliate program. So it is practical as well as interesting in terms of how it applies to my work life. Hi, everyone. I'm Grace Ng. I am a faculty member at the Center for Medical Simulation. And also, as my full-time work, I work in New York City as the nursing director at the New York Simulation Center for the Health Sciences. So I've been a nurse for 20 years. My clinical background is I'm a midwife and an OB nurse. Currently, I am finishing my PhD study, and my study focus is psychological safety influence nursing practice in a hospital. Hi, I'm QJ from Changi General Hospital in Singapore. I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm here at CMS as an international fellow. Good afternoon. I'm Mel Barlow. I am the Director of Simulation with Mata Education in Brisbane and currently an international scholar at CMS. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Mabel Gomez. I am from Bogota, Colombia. I'm intensivist and cardiologist. Uh, currently doing my master's in epidemiology with the London School and now as an international scholarship at the CMS. Uh, hello, my name is Clément Bréon. I'm a French anesthesiologist at the University Hospital of Caen, executive director of Normandy Simulation Santé, Center for Medical Simulation Research Fellow uh, currently. All right, so I'm just going to preview our order of presentation. So Grace Ang's going to be reviewing team composition mm -hmm. and the ABCs of teamwork. Kate Morse is going to be reviewing debunking key assumptions about teams, the role of culture. Jenny Rudolph will be reviewing the science of team science, a review of the empirical evidence and research gaps on collaboration in science. 
QJ Tong will be reviewing teamwork in healthcare, key discoveries enabling safer, high-quality care. And then I will, Janice Palianis, will be reviewing addressing the paradox of the team innovation process, a review and practical consideration. Grace, I'm going to have you take it away. The article that I'm reviewing is titled Team Composition and the ABCs of Teamwork. It is an integrative review article which summarizes findings from literature on team composition and how it affects the ABCs of teamwork. And the author went back as far as the 1980s to look at articles. So I'll explain what team composition and the ABCs of teamwork is in a few minutes. Um, So in the background, um, which is kind of almost made up of half the article, which is five pages long, the authors um, started to introduce the two key concepts that's being reviewed in this article. The first one is, they call it the ABCs of teamwork, where it's just an acronym referring to the affective state, so the A, and the B refers to behaviors or how the team works together. And C refers to cognitive states or knowledge, ability, shared mental models. And they also looked at this concept of team composition, which is the configuration of team member attributes. So what's salient to me is they kind of looked at team member attributes, focusing on what they call the service level attribute, which is mostly demographic. So uh, things like gender, ethnicity, professional background, and also deeper level attributes like personality, abilities, values, attitudes, etc. So one of the key discovery that they summarize amongst others, and this is most salient to me because it relates to IPE and IPC, is that surface level attributes diversity is they found that there's no direct relationship between team efficacy and service level diversity on age, gender, and, and ethnicity. I think the key takeaway for me is I think we don't know right now a whole lot about how does the surface level attributes affect team effectiveness and the team culture. So I think the authors really spend a lot of time looking at that. So my key takeaway is that we still have a lot of work to do or people studying teams still needs to focus quite a bit on, you know, how does the team composition affect the culture of the team and further along, how does it affect the team outcomes as well? So my question to you is, in your opinion, what team composition matters? What attributes matters to you and when does it matter and when it does not matter? That's so interesting because, Grace, you and I just taught a course in Florida, the advanced course at yeah. University of Florida Gainesville. And we talked about implicit bias. And I remember taking the the test and I consistently come out neutral. <laughs> and I know that's not like, that's not true. There's got to be, there has to be um, characteristics and other attributes that that I think fall into it. And, and I love this talk about fault lines. And and one thing, because I did read this article too, when they talk about activating fault, fault mm-hmm. lines, they talk about how it's not necessary to activate fault lines. Mm-hmm. And so, so I found that very interesting. Grace, one of the things I uh, have learned recently about team composition that I really am trying to involve in team meetings of any sort that I have either at the Center for Medical Simulation or in other contexts is that the minority report, the less common opinion, the less well-represented group often has extremely crucial information to operational level performance. This idea comes from Amy Edmondson's book, Teaming, where she says, when you're really trying to get something done, it's very easy, as we all know, to fall into groupthink. But often when you have, for example, an interdisciplinary healthcare team trying to solve a thorny problem, it's the environmental services or janitor who might have a breakthrough idea, even though it's all the physicians primarily talking with each other. So that's an interesting aspect of team composition to me. I just want to add on to Jenny's comment completely agree that that is often the case that we, by not taking in those other considerations, we're missing a very important piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking the challenge, and I'm wondering if this came up in the discussion around tea composition, how to actively engage that, that 
part of the team or have them feel included in that part of the team. Because I, I think that that's part of the challenge in a multidisciplinary team approach with high power gradients that those elements in the team may not speak up or you know, share their thinking. You know, Kate, that's such an interesting point. In the article, um, they wrote that the external context of the team, for example, if it's a physician-dominated industry or if it's a male-dominated industry, that's when the surface level attributes come mostly into play and has the biggest effect on team outcomes. But the authors didn't say how to. So I think if I were to critique this article, there's not not much on how to implement this, but it's mostly a conceptual review. Right. Yeah. But it certainly sparks interesting thinking Absolutely. about the challenges. Yeah. So, uh, so just exploring this reality in our team right here, We've heard from three of our uh, Center for Medical Simulation faculty, but not so much from newer voices in this context. And I personally <laughs> love to hear from some newer voices if you have any take on this. I guess for me, it depends on the team itself, whether it's a team that knows one another or whether it's an ad hoc team. I think with an ad hoc team, the moves need to be a whole lot more deliberate and intentional to draw out voices than with teams that are familiar with one another. I would perhaps take the opposite take on that, Mel, because I sometimes think in well-established teams, there are dynamics of who dominates the conversation and who's quiet, whose, whose opinion counts more and whose opinion counts less. In my experience, I think one has to work equally hard in both contexts. What's your take on that? Yes, I absolutely see your point. I think where I'm coming from is there is a, in my mind, a potentially higher degree of psychological safety amongst a team that know one another versus an ad hoc team who are trying to get to know one another. Okay, so I think that is our discussion of our first article led by Grace Ang and helped out by me and Janice. And Janice, I'm going to toss the ball to you to take it to our next person. Our next person is Kate. Ready, Kate? I'm ready. So I'm presenting the article titled Debunking Key Assumptions About Teams, the Role of Culture. And this article also is more at the conceptual level, but I think there's some very interesting points. So they were interested in exploring this because in 1998, there was a move in psychology that culture had to be taken in consideration with respect to human development, thought, and behavior. And they wanted to sort of see what the state of the science was around culture and mainstream team concepts. And are they generalizable? They anchored this in the idea of team process of being forming, functioning, and finishing. And they did a lit review from 2006 on. On. And they looked at six key assumptions underpinning this, which I think is the most interesting part, is that the bulk of this literature that we look upon for expertise around team behaviors, team change, team challenges, is based in Western culture. So a lot of it was are these assumptions applicable in other cultures? So they looked at um, trust that trust is trust among uh, team members. These are their six assumptions. Is trust among team members critical for effective collaboration? Are individuals who have a team orientation more likely to participate and contribute than those with individualistic? Virtual teams have more interpersonal challenges than traditional teams. Conflict always must or should be managed with a collective process. Empowering team uh, leadership behaviors makes teams more effective and using teams is the optimal approach to complex problem solving. Mm. And then they looked at revising these assumptions based on the, the cross-cultural perspective. My take home from this article is that our assumption that our Western cultural approach is not a good one in all contexts. So for example, using the, the assumption around trust, that the agreement is that yes, trust is required and essential regardless of the cultural context. However, there are various paths to getting to trust formation in different cultures. 
And it made me think more deeply, and I've been thinking about this because of our teaching in international settings, is how can we transfer our concepts in regards to team behavior and debriefing in different cultural contexts. So my take home from this was it's not a direct transferable concept. We have to consider the other cultures and understand how they contextualize what it is that we know from our practice in the Western society around team building. And my question was kind of twofold because as I was reading it, I was thinking about frames and I was thinking that the frames that I personally carry, that we each personally carry, that influence how we view the world is really my internal cultural view of the world. So I have an internal cultural, then I may have an external team culture, then I have a bigger culture that that team exists within. So how do these things all come together and influence how we teach our construct to have difficult conversations to help teams get closer to excellence in patient safety. Okay, so uh, how does that land on people? What are your reactions to that? I'll just jump in. It makes sense to me that cultures are really different, but the question I have is, let me have a good example about how the formation of teams in a non-Western culture specifically might be different, you know, a, a, a real life example of that. So Jeff, thank you. I'm thinking we have a multicultural fellow group here that can speak from their perspective in their different cultures. And I know I have had a lot of conversations of late when we've been traveling around how how it is different, what the that the assumptions are different, but it doesn't mean that trust is different. So, for example, in the Arabic culture, it may not be an acceptable process to directly speak up verbally in front of others because there's a loss of face. But there is another way that they have of communicating that when something is not right. So they may ask questions that are more related to information so so that they're gathering information. But in that way, they're also speaking up at the same time. And there was a small study that looked at that. That's a good example. Helps me put it in context. Kate, did they talk about the different power distance, you know, the range of power distance in cultures and, you know, some of the assumptions that you, you were saying that they revised the assumptions. Did they talk anything about that? They did a, a little bit. They talked about how, in terms of conflict resolution, how only some team members may feel comfortable voicing their opinions, particularly under the context of a, a unequal power distribution. And some cultures, it's very appropriate to have avoidance versus collective resolution of conflict in a public forum. And that was a good example of the differences in culturally. So we have a cultural norm in the West that we want to resolve conflict in a team openly, transparently, publicly, but that may not cross all cultures. And how can we work in those spaces and being um, sensitive to the context that that team functions in. I'd like to just move this conversation, if I could, to the here and now, because we have an interesting moment where we're forming a new team, an ad hoc team, to have this conversation. We have people who have worked together for 10 years or more on the call. We have people who've worked together for one or two years on the call. We have people who are just working together for the first time for 10 days, five days, a few days. And how do we, what can we do with this moment to make it friendly for all our different voices to come in from different cultural backgrounds, different expectations, different levels of knowledge? I'm partially bringing this up because it's part of the theme of the article I read, which is how do we, what is the science of good collaboration on teams? So love to hear from any of our newer voices, what kinds of things are the barriers to your speaking up right now and what kinds of things would make it easier? And we can keep this in our conversation or we can excise it out later, but what's up with you guys? Uh, this is Mabel and I would like to share my thoughts. I think personal conversations would be great because sometimes risk takers emerge more easy if they feel that the conditions necessary for that risk 
uh, are given. In my case, when you are non a non-native speaker, sometimes you feel that you don't have the words to say what you want to express. And you try to be more quiet, not because you are not interested, but probably because you don't want to, as you say, put your foot on your mouth. And uh, uh-huh. that's one of the things that probably people don't think when they are dealing with people from other cultures. As a learner, I struggle not only with that, but trying to convey my ideas with the best possible words and, of course, trying to keep up with the entire team. So I think personal conversations could help in terms of expectations and feedback to learn and to advance faster in the learning process. So I just want to thank you so much for putting out that wonderful, generous sharing, Mabel, because you and I did not have a chance to have a personal conversation before this about these issues. And yet here you are kindly taking some risks to share your thinking, which I think has already deepened the conversation. So mm-hmm. please keep it up. I think it's fantastic. This is QJ. I think from the Asian perspective, teams often hierarchical. That means the leader is often someone who is senior and more prestigious in terms of uh, the profession. And it's inevitable that the team members would feel cowed by that and then they wouldn't tend to speak up. And I think one enabling factor would be to have to get the leader to step down and present a more level playing field to the rest of the team so that everyone will feel empowered to speak up. Love that. I'm, I'm, um, I'm stepping down right now, QJ, getting lower and lower. No, seriously, I, I think you're onto a very, very good point there. Yes, uh, Clément, in France and almost in Europe, we have the same presentation of a team with uh, a strong power and influence leader with some time review uh, adverse events, highlighting that members of the team are aware that uh, the leader is wrong or mistaking and because they're too shy or there is a high-level uh, respect or fear about the leader, they do not dare to speak up, which is one of the points that we try to work on through simulations. Mm-hmm. But it's still a generations of doctors uh, who are strongly seat on their power and don't want to share, the, share it and think that if they are not the one who decide or who are speaking up, uh, their leadership is questioned, which is not the reality, but it's how some of them uh, see the situation and continue to teach to their uh, students. Great, thank you. So thank you, Jenny, for leading us into doing some deliberate application of the concepts that Kate mentions in this article. And thank you, Kate, for your presentation. And um, thank you. Oh, and, Jenny. And well, and thank you for uh, Mabel and QJ and uh, Clement sharing. And um, Mel, I know you shared some interesting ideas before. So I just really appreciate the uh, courage and, and uh, uh, insights that you guys shared in participating. And keep it up. Jenny, you are next. Okay. So I'm going to present a very meta article entitled The Science of Team Science, a research of the empirical evidence and research gaps in collaboration in science. Imagine a president stands in front of an entire nation and pledges to get a person to the moon within a certain number of years. And suddenly, the institutions, the teams, the excitement, the team functioning all come together and the funding to make that happen. This article focuses on how do we pull together interdisciplinary, interprofessional, and cross-institutional teams to find breakthroughs in science of all sorts. And the review team looked at five major factors that they found through the following methods. So first they looked at over 3,000 articles. From that, they got 109 
And from those, they did a qualitative analysis of what were the main themes. They found five things. One is the value that people put on interdisciplinary um, collaboration. The second was the actual composition of the teams. The third was how do those teams get formed? The fourth was what is effective team functioning? And I'm not gonna cover that because Grace's article really covered the ABCs of that and I think we don't need to go into that more. And then lastly, what are the institutional influences? And so I'm gonna just highlight a couple things because there's quite a bit in every single one of them. In the value area, one of the questions is, how much overlap should there be among teams, different kinds of interests? Like, should everybody have really different interests in the research subject or should they all have the same? They found a bell-shaped curve. You want everybody to be moderately interested in the same things. Similarly, in team composition, they found that too much diversity in either profession, gender, culture, institution does not work well but neither does too little. So again, a bell-shaped curve there, you want a moderate amount of difference in who's on the team. In terms of forming the teams, I just wanted to share one sort of unexpected finding there, which is the best way to form up the teams is to use weak ties. So people you know slightly help you get together with people who you might not normally think of could help you with your disciplinary challenge. And strong ties keep the teams working together. So something like our group today, strengthening our trust and ties by trying to do this book club. The last two things I'm going to cover are effective team functioning. I said I wouldn't, but I realize there's one important thing, which is it turns out face-to-face -face meetings, old-fashioned conferences are super key in developing unusual team collaboration. And then the last factor is all of our institutions need to change to some degree how we are paid, how we are rewarded, where we sit, and the technology available to us, those institutional factors make a huge difference in how we collaborate. How do they measure the value of interdisciplinary collaboration? It was the quality or amount of innovation and then the quantity of publications. So my question to you guys is, given that we in healthcare education are currently putting quite a bit of emphasis on interprofessional collaboration. What do you guys see as the institutional factors and or value of high quality interdisciplinary or interprofessional collaboration in creating new insights or new theories? I don't know that I quite understood the question, the last part of it, the new theory part of it, versus what are the institutional factors, for instance, in um, enabling and fostering interprofessional teams? If that's the general question, that's one thing, but I don't know about the adding the last part of it. Oh, well, so. thanks for speaking up there, Jeff, uh, to clarify. Why don't we take that in two parts, because I think it's a little tricky. Question one is, what do you all think of as the institutional factors and that could be at the university level, the hospital level, the business level, the nonprofit level, the departmental level, foster interdisciplinary collaboration. All right. So that's the one that to me has at least got a more specific answer. And and that has to do with how how the institution itself and the individual suborganizations, the leadership of those foster the the cross connections and i'd say most in most organizations they're incredibly siloed and there will be some pockets where a couple of departments where some groups will try to cross over and and it's not typically rewarded because if you do things interprofessionally uh, the rewards aren't there for instance for publication so uh so I, I think it's a huge issue as to whether the individual leader of a department and of the organization does things to get people to socialize together particularly socialized together uh, across their, their silos and especially silos that have some potential interaction. So I'll just mention an example of, I think, a supportive measure that academic institutions that reward people for publications can do, which is recognizing that multi-author articles are valuable and that playing a role as either a lead author or a supporting senior author 
uh, should be valued in the promotion process, and more and more schools are doing that, as well as appreciating the value of other people who are in the middle of the author order. Part of why this is so important is there's, according to the authors, $433 billion spent on collaborative research and research and development in the United States alone. And figuring out how do we get these collaborations to really happen is very important to that money being used. Other takes on how to support interprofessional collaboration institutionally. I think this is hitting at so many levels. And, and as you pose the question, Jenny, I mean, a hundred, I, f- I felt like just a hundred words came out at once. And, you know, when I think of the seven teamwork dimensions by Morgan, I feel like there are many things that could set up an institution enabling them for collaboration and successful teamwork. And when it all falls down to it, I feel like all of those dimensions heavily depend on psychological safety and and setting that up and the underlying values of the team members being able to hold the psychological safety or the container for each other where there is trust and just kind of tying back to um, what Kate presented and what Grace presented, trust in the, and the ABCs of teamwork. So Janice, you're talking about an institutional factor that is not a organizational chart, is not a bricks and mortar building, is not right. a formal artifact, but an informal part of the climate which is psychological safety and trust is one of the institutional factors. Right, which could which to me is is the root of of many things that could present itself as more physical. If you if you start with that, you can structure your department, you know, as as I've seen emergency departments structure their department so that there is more communication or that sort of thing. So thank you, everybody. I know that was a bit of a uh, sprint right there, and I really appreciate your jumping in and participating. And Janice, I'm going to toss the ball back to you to orient for our next topic. All right. So our next topic is with QJ and um, enabling safer, high-quality care. All right. Um, I'm going to talk about my article, which is titled Teamwork in Healthcare, Key Discoveries, Enabling Safer, High-Quality Care. And this article is a review to highlight the psychological research that led to the advancement of evidence-based teamwork practices in care delivery. It looks at how reforms were aimed at improving coordination of delivery of healthcare, and teamwork is actually required to achieve such shared goals and to manage complex work. He divided the discoveries into teams and without going into specifics, I think some of the important ones that came up is that uh, teamwork processes that are important in healthcare includes rapid learning, listening intently, adapting and speaking up. And such team performance can be measured with proven validity. Healthcare Team training competencies can also be systematically improved. These are some new focus on areas to improve in terms of teamwork. And they talk about teamwork, not just between within the team, but the nature of healthcare and complex problems that we face now requires multi-team setups to in order to tackle the problem. When you when you do that, not only you can improve patient outcomes, you can also improve the staff outcomes as well as the organizational outcomes, and more understanding on how such interdependence team processes interact to impact outcomes will be required in the future. So my takeaway from this article, looking at the article, it seems that. Organizational leadership is required for change in thinking about how we go about looking at healthcare problems. It's too simple to link a complex patient outcome such as hospital readmission or mortality rate to the work of any single care delivery team. And with uh, tribal leadership and its inherent impact of fault lines, there, there is a need to foster better collaboration between all the disciplines and specialties. Team training has to expand beyond intra-team training to multi-team setups. So my question, there has been much focus on interprofessional education and training. However, the 
clinical outcomes and improvements from this focus are really not emphasized very much to the participants. And I think there is a need to link them up in our causes. What are your thoughts on that? I recently spent a few days at the Gold Coast University Hospital in uh, Queensland, Australia, where they've been doing multidisciplinary trauma simulations and a variety of other multidisciplinary simulations in situ, but with large-scale teams involving patients moving through the hospital, et cetera. And one of the things that links up to what you're talking about, QJ, is the focus on clinical outcomes that the departments care about. There are some easy-to-measure ones, such as time, like time from the door of the emergency department to the cath lab or another example is time from the door of the emergency department to decompression of a subdural hematoma. And those outcomes, T1 and moving into what are called T2 outcomes, as Bill McGahee has written about, are a really important part of the translational quality of simulation-based education, for example. But one of the side effects of that that I've uh, heard Victoria Brazel talk about is that it forces teams to see the good work each other do interdisciplinarily and improves the positive regard kind of across tribes. So paradoxically, focusing on a clinical outcome with a cared about agenda can have a secondary impact of improving interdisciplinary and intertribal outcomes. So I like your focus, QJ, on clinical outcomes. I'm not really aware that there's good data generally on that whole that whole question of the effectiveness of in healthcare in particular of how the team impacts any outcomes really that there's any definitive work on on that. I I, mean, I vaguely remember there's some, but I just don't know. Is there what was there a chapter in this that an article in this that addressed that? I'm going to have to look into the specific line when I've seen that. But they have actually um, have studies that prove that better team, better teamwork uh, led to a decrease in mortality. So it was quoted in the article. In our, in our field of simulation, there are a variety of subspecialized simulation training programs that improved, for example, the communication and teamwork among um, labor and delivery teams in the process of transporting patients from the labor and delivery floor to the OR and improved certain maternal uh, uh, health, you know, um, local uh, maternal health outcomes. I believe there's a similar process captured in the California uh, Maternal Mortality Collaborative data, looking at how the team's functioning related to the management of postpartum hemorrhage or the outcomes of, or, or the amount of postpartum hemorrhage and the consequences of postpartum hemorrhage, but definitely worth looking into some more. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, think in relation to patient outcomes, we, in interprofessional education, we learn about each other, but I still think there is such an important place of deliberate communication methodologies because we know that breakdown in communications lead to adverse patient outcome. Yes, I think as long as part of the interprofessional education is coming up with a standard framework and deliberate rehearsal on how we talk to one another because it's not an implicit skill, it's something that requires deliberate practice and I think that will have a significant impact. I just want to add that there's a need to change attitudes and in thinking that when you take care of a patient, how is this my problem in terms of clinical specialties? Very often, the first question that's posed to the team would be that, why are you consulting me on this problem? How is this my problem when it's not my patient? And I think there is a need to change the mindset into a collaborative mindset, into how we can help this patient rather than this is your patient and this is my patient and therefore it's not my problem. On that high note, uh, QJ, I'm thinking we should wrap up this conversation, but the idea of moving from a subspecialty view of the patient, why is this my problem, to a patient-centric 
uh, view, I think, is uh, very um, valuable. So I'm going to shift us back to the uh, to I guess it can apply to any at any setting, including in education, and and I'm thinking for what we do in uh, university settings or in educational development. So the article I'm summarizing comes to us from Amanda Thayer, Alexandra Petrozelli, Caitlin McClurg, and it's entitled "Addressing the Paradox." of the team innovation process, a review and practical considerations. So to summarize, this article talks about uh, the challenge that innovation teams face and how the conditions that best foster idea generation is essentially paradoxical to the best conditions that facilitate implementing them. So in other words, in in implementation of projects and such, you need convergence and convergent thinking um, with everyone on the same page. And for creativity to happen, you need uh, divergent thinking and divergence. And so implementation needs familiarity and a degree of certainty, whereas innovation needs novelty and uncertainty. So the authors talk about this through uh, different sections of the articles, the first being the challenges of what innovation teams typically face. Some of those are uh, rapidly developing technology, individual creative and divergent capacity, undefined roles, ambiguous teamwork. Then they talk about team innovation reviews and frameworks in the literature, which is uh, very interesting. Many of them show multidimensional frameworks and and, uh, just generally speaking to those, the frameworks that they present, they all include factors, antecedents, characteristics, whatever you'd like to call them at the individual group and organizational dimensions. And then they define the team innovation process uh, and then give a summary of the literature around these themes and sub-themes. Uh, and I really appreciate it and learned a lot from this section. The main takeaways is that is really an appreciation of the paradox of, of innovation and implementation and, and gaining new theoretical language, such as um, they talk about ambidexterity theory, environmental dynamism and reflexivity, basically helping the process of of innovation. And and then I've also taken away some appreciation of the themes and the levels and the sub-themes and the sub-levels, basically the complexity of innovating when in teams, which I think can, if, if you read it, can give you labels that can help you identify when it occurs to you in your work and in your practice. So I'm going to mention some of these now because I think it ties into the question that I'd like to pose to the group. I think uh, we have to find ways to be innovative and shift to implementation despite this paradox have successful outcomes. And so my question to the group is, what do you see to be the primary, you know, I like the fact that we focused on enablers earlier, but the primary enabler that best supports the innovation process. So I'm going to throw out some from the literature, a lot of which we've already talked about. There's team composition, so individual KSAOs, knowledge, skills, attitudes, and others like openness, self-acceptance, initiative, Um, Then there are team attributes. Basically, the team has to have some level of social skills to figure out uh, how to listen or when to contribute. And then diversity. Diversity plays a big role in increasing creative solutions and skill and functional diversity. They also talk about communication. They talk about cognition. Uh, So shared mental models, reflexivity. They also talk about conflict and how it's uh, in the literature. It's some feel that it's a negative impact and some feel that it's beneficial. And then creative leadership or the context, which we had talked about the, you know, the climate or the culture where you belong. So my question is, uh, given that list and maybe you have some of your own, what do you see to be the primary enabler that can best support the innovation process? Well, one of the things that I always think about creativity and innovation is actually the value of constraint, which I didn't hear you mention, but I think is really important. So I think there's a a wonderful essay by the composer Tchaikovsky on how having the constraints of music theory allows him to be very creative. You have a completely open 
palette, completely open space, it's much more hard to innovate. So I think having a goal or having certain constraints are a really important part of innovating in teams. And that overlaps with the work of Richard Hackman and others, that having a clear and compelling goal and certain kind of boundaries allows, actually paradoxically allows for innovation. Yeah, no, they definitely talk about divergent. So they they present it as diverting from something that's structured that allows for creativity. And I don't know if that kind of meets what you're saying there, Jenny. I think that the the feeling that the leader sets is one of the most critical as to how much you ensure that that people can throw out their ideas and and when somebody else starts to shut them down, that you really have to keep that environment open so that people feel free to bring up ideas that uh, even if they're not the best. So that I think it's critical to creating a really innovative environment. Yeah, they talk a lot about leadership and not just leadership, but creative leadership. And um, much like we saw our fearless leader, Jenny, talk about bringing in behavior through role expectations in just this conversation, they talk about leader behaviors and how they influence innovative behavior. They also talk about um, ambidextrous leaders, which I think you're alluding to, which is, you know, being able to know both dimensions of this paradox and helping overcome that process and then also transformational leadership. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned in the context of CMS, when we first formed in the mid-90s, the team had a mixed composition, but it was very heavily on the abstract thinking and the innovative side. And when we did our first team trainings, which started uh, like about in the second year that we formed, uh, one of the things we learned from one of the psychological tests that we all took is that there were a range of uh, the way people, uh, their ability to innovate in an abstract way and innovate in a concrete way. That is operational people are concrete innovators and uh, people who are abstract innovators are creating new ideas. And we were so heavily weighted in the one direction with no very little operational or, uh, uh, innovation, if you will, in terms of the people, that it caused a lot of disruption. So, so an important thing was to recognize that each person on the team brought something different to the ability of the team to both innovate and to implement. That is so interesting because I think it you're touching on something and Jenny just mentioned it too. And one one of the things that they mentioned in this article is that teams generate fewer they you know they bring this from the literature. Teams generate fewer ideas in brainstorming sessions than do individuals because of process loss, you know, forgetting ideas and uncomfortable sharing ideas, things that we've talked about earlier. And and so I do wonder if whether it's an issue of diversity, leadership, or the fact that it sounds like you were doing some things in a team setting. Yeah, just day to day and and whether it was creating new scenarios or creating a new program that people like to innovate. And we have a bunch of innovative people together with a bunch of energy. Uh, As you were saying, the team that implements is usually a different kind of person. (laughs) And in most simulation organizations, they're not big enough, most of them to have that diversity and they may be weighted toward the operational side or the creativity side. And you can get conflict between those team members because each one has some disrespect for the other because they feel like they don't respect that either this is what it takes to create or this is what it takes to implement. And so Uh what we had to do, what was important was to get everybody to appreciate the value of those uh, different uh, perspectives that the different people brought so we could both innovate and implement. So I'd like to uh, add a summary statement to the article that you have brought up for us, Janice, and then move to closing the podcast as a whole. Janice, you've talked a bit about the ambidextrous capabilities of an organization, which refer to its ability to explore and innovate at the same time that it needs to exploit existing knowledge and uh, standard operating procedures to implement. And I think for the Center for Medical Simulation Culture, and for a lot of us who struggle to balance being inclusive of multiple different perspectives, as we've talked about numerous times in this conversation, and is seeded throughout the teamwork literature, this idea of the importance of diverse perspectives and inclusivity, that can really come to the fore with things like pairing advocacy and inquiry. 
But what your article really highlights is there's a point where you just need to switch to advocating and getting it done and taking the steps and being potentially more unilateral and less divergent as a team. We're just doing it this way. And so I think one of the important things I'd like to suggest that we can all think about is what you've labeled a paradox, Janice, in fact, might be a bit of a tension between openness, exploration, and inclusivity on the one hand, and uh, definitiveness, closure, and getting things done on the other. And possibly what we can do, for example, I'm thinking in our meetings when we're trying to run, you know, do project meetings, is be more explicit with each other about are we in a divergent format right now or are we in a convergent format where we're trying to get something done? So I really thank you for that article. It's great, Jenny. So, so folks, I'd like to wrap up this entire podcast. And uh, since I'm trained as a debriefer and I love debriefing, I'm thinking I'm going to ask us all for some takeaways. And so if you could just give that a little bit of thought, what's your favorite thing you heard today or something you're going to use in your practice? So I think my favorite thing is uh, how much a lot of these themes overlap are, are foundational to each of these different perspectives of teamwork. For example, culture and environment and individual values and barriers. Hi, it's Mel here. I guess what it highlighted to me just how complex teamwork is and that it's not an exact science, but at the same time, it is dynamic and um, breeds innovation. And so it's, yeah, that, that complexity also um, is exciting. Recognizing and leveraging the paradox, or as Jenny put it, the tension between innovation and implementation of innovation. I think that's really salient for me. I think for me, the key takeaway would be that in looking at a team, diversion thinking and conversion thinking are both important. And as a team leader, the ultimate focus is on the end goal, the end outcome, which is what it takes to get things done for the patient. Okay, I think we will leave it there. Uh, Janice, thank you for herding us cats into the book club again for another month. I just really appreciate the opportunity to learn uh, with you, you and everybody else. Thank you, everyone, for joining, and thank you for listening. Bye, right, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been the Center for Medical Simulation Monthly Book Club, led by Janice Palaganis, and this month co-led with <laughs> me, Jenny Rudolph. The CMS Book Club is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about the Center for Medical Simulation and sign up for our simulation instructor training at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.